Greetings and salutations from Times Square, crossroads of the world. This is the Muni Lowdown, produced by DebtWire Municipals, where we talk about this week's most interesting stories in the municipal bond market. And I am your host, Young Lim, desk editor at DebtWire Municipals. Good morning. Today is Tuesday, May 19, 2020. Hope everyone's staying safe during this uh, pandemic. Uh, we've got two very interesting stories on the Muni Lowdown, a weekly podcast. First up is Midtown Campus Properties LLC, the owner of a Gainesville, Florida student housing project under construction near the University of Florida. They filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection on May 8th in the U.S. Bankruptcy Court for the Southern District of Florida. Miramonte will be here discussing that. And our second story is about how the Federal Reserve is establishing a $500 billion municipal liquidity facility, better known as the MLF, to bolster state and local cash flow during the new COVID-19 pandemic. And DebtWire's Caitlin Devitt will explain how the program works and how it's, uh, the markets are reacting to it. All right, let's get started. Good morning, Maria Monte in Brooklyn. How are you? I'm well. How are you, young women, New Jersey? I am good. It's a, it's actually a gorgeous day here. Uh, the sun is shining. It's cool and crisp out in Bergen County, but it's beautiful. I'm sure it's, it's, it's where you are too. So, indeed, very lucky day. All right, let's talk about one of the trending stories we posted on Deadwire last week, and I won't give too much away, uh, be, uh, because it's about a quote-unquote, luxury student housing facility. But tell us about this project and why did, it, why did it file for bankruptcy? Midtown Campus Properties is a luxury student housing facility. It's located in Gainesville, Florida, near the University of Florida campus. And the Florida Development Finance uh, Corporation issued nearly $80 million worth of taxable student housing bonds on behalf of Midtown Cam- Campus Properties in 2019. Construction on the project had already started before the bonds were issued, and the facility was set to open for the new school year. The property is going to have 589 beds and 310 units, and construction is currently 90% complete. But construction has been delayed several times on the property, primarily due to disputes with multiple contractors. Hurricane Irma in 2017 caused disruptions, and more recently, coronavirus delayed construction for two and a half weeks. But the contractor dispute might be a primary driver here. In a first day motion, one of the owners declared that the company believes it has quote unquote, substantial claims against the contractor because of change orders, cost overruns, depletion of the construction fund and other delays. The contractor also apparently threatened to cease construction on the project. It's already filed a request for debtor and possession financing for 5.2 million from BMI Financial Group, which is a lender affiliated with an equity member of the project at a 9% interest rate. And the first hearing is scheduled for tomorrow, May 20th. Hmm. So some contractor dispute sounds like it's like mm-hmm. a main driver there. So Maria, I know you, you uh, cover higher ed. You've, co- you've written stories before, especially one in Oklahoma about these sort of student luxury housing things. Do you do you think this is a um, what's the word I'm looking for? Is you, do you think this is a tale for let's say future student housing bankruptcies? I'm not sure this is a formula that we repeated exactly. There are a lot of specific characteristics for this case, but this is a sector student housing and higher education 
that faces so many challenges and disruptions in this COVID-19 world. I expect there will be enrollment pressures in the fall if campuses open. Are parents and students going to be enthusiastic about sending their students to dorms and classrooms in the middle of a pandemic? And if campus isn't open, will students take a gap year or hold off on attendance altogether? And maybe affordability becomes an issue. We're at 14.7% unemployment and perhaps some parents and students take time off because the cost of attendance will be too great. This is true not just for first year students, but also for upperclassmen and maybe even graduate students. International enrollment, which has been declining for years due to immigration changes, will definitely see further reductions given travel limitations and concern about the virus and future outbreaks. In the mini market before coronavirus, a major topic of concern was the health of the higher education sector and conventional wisdom suggested a reckoning was due within the next decade. We've largely voiced concerns about small private liberal arts schools, and they're going to have the greatest struggles. There are several schools that have been facing a ticking time bomb for quite some time, and we are really about to see a real test for those schools and honestly the entire sector. And as that translates to student housing, point blank, if classes aren't held on campus, then there will be little to no demand for dorms, but also off-campus housing. And that is a major factor going forward to watch here. As more and more colleges postpone fall semesters or cancel on-campus classes, that's money lost for both student housing providers and the colleges themselves. The colleges depend on that auxiliary revenue for a great part of their budgets. And not only is student private student housing backed by bonds, many colleges and universities also have auxiliary revenue bonds secured by, in part, student fees and expenses. And so those could be also those could also be compromised here. Young, what are you thinking about this? You have a daughter who's um, on campus who's a, at a four-year institution, right? That's correct. And thank you for asking. And I don't want to get off too much off tangent because this is your story. But to answer your question, it's it's a waiting game like everyone else. Anyone who has a, a child at, at, a, at a higher uh, educational institution for the fall, we're waiting because uh, our school hasn't said anything. Um, if they go back, you know, we're willing to pay the, the, the tuition amount. But at the same time, there's a safety factor, a health factor. And if they don't go back, but they have online classes, then there's the, co- the cost element. Is it worth, you know, going to a four-year institution and not having that social, that interactive experience you have with students and faculty and, and so forth? So, yeah, that's a big question. That's, we just don't know. Uh, all I know is that we're waiting. Um, my daughter had to come back early, obviously, like everybody else. And we've got a credit for um, room and board for the fall. But other than that, we don't know. So... We shall see. So but, stressful uh, and frustrating. Oh, it is. It, it absolutely is. Any any parent. And even, even we're sort of, if you can send that toward education in general, you know, people, people working at home, you've got younger kids around the household. I'm sure part of being a parent is like, let them go back to school. Let them let these rugrats <laughs> out of my house. You know, we need to get, we need to get Chuck back on and his kids. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm so stressful. So, I'm so sorry for all this parents and for all of you. Yeah, but thank you. But Maria, I've got one last question uh, before we wrap up uh, your segment. Uh, let me ask you, the, the last question is, um, so what are some other ways that this COVID-19, the coronavirus, uh, can impact higher education and student housing going forward? We discussed it. You actually brought up a couple of these points. Um, 
but I have a couple friends who are in graduate school. Uh, one got her MBA uh, earlier this month. Mm-hmm. And I'm here, so I'm hearing anecdotally that Zoom learning is simply not the same. And I wonder if that fatigue is going to further pressure, pressure enrollment or cause students and families to ask, what are we paying for without that on-campus instruction and interaction? The entire business model has been up, interrupted by coronavirus. I haven't heard of any schools re-examining the tuition structure yet, but some of them may need to. The campus experience, as you mentioned, Young, the social connections, the communities you build on campus are intended to be lifelong connections. And I think that losing the campus experience will force some kinds of evaluation about the whole structure. And the larger point is that all college revenue streams are currently compromised. At public schools, state aid is a very substantial revenue source. And with states feeling revenue pressure, they may have to look to cuts and higher education is usually one of the first on the chopping block. But what's interesting is that the HEROES Act addressed this in part. It included a provision for that higher education funding for public institutions is dependent on state aid. Rather, states are expected to maintain funding for funding levels for higher education from fiscal 19, so before coronavirus, for additional federal aid. Of course, got a disclaimed Heroes Act. President Trump has already threatened to veto. It passed the House last week, Friday, but we don't know how much further this goes. That said, I'm very curious to see how it all plays out. Higher ed funding is starting to be viewed somewhat differently. It's become a more important policy priority for some. And as more and more people view higher education funding as a long-term investment in the state's future and young people, after 2008, there were tremendous cuts to public funding for higher education. And that might be a lesson learned from the previous downturn, that viewpoint that those cuts may have been a mistake. So we'll see what comes next, but that's definitely a factor to monitor. Definitely. And you brought up I'm going, to illust- I'm going to point out two interesting points. One, like you said, is public higher education. Like you said, the states, almost every state's been impacted by this COVID-19. And the, the trickle-down effect, like you said, higher ed, the, the pub- higher public ed univer- universities get their funding from the state. So that's a big impact right there. And the second thing, you might have, you might have hit upon a, a new um, phrase, because everyone talks about in the past how Zoom's become very popular and they were Zoom bombings on a negative scale. Well... <laughs> Maybe there's a new word now, Zoom fatigue, because <laughs> it's not the same anymore. You know, you, you could have, that's a new catchphrase, Maria. Maybe we'll... Um... I'll try to trademark it and I'll see exactly. what I can do. Exactly. Good luck with that. <laughs> Thanks. All right, Maria. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your insight. And I hope you stay safe out there. Likewise. Talk to you soon. Have okay. Take care. Okay. Let's move on to Kaylin Devin, Chicago. Kaylin, how are you today? I'm pretty good. It's a rainy day in Chicago. How are you? Oh, it's uh, well. We've got the we've got the sun out here in on the East Coast. It's a beautiful day, but um, I'm sure whatever you've got will come to us eventually. So, but thanks, <laughs> but thanks. Uh, but welcome back to the show. And not to get too into details, but you said you were off yesterday. So something to me to me it's like sort of a, a weird concept a day off because i'm home every day so i don't know what people do on a day off so nothing we just don't i just didn't work but <laughs> nothing else it's just like that's a weekend thing, but, yeah. <laughs> i know All the right. boundaries between everything are collapsing right? <laughs> I'll, I'll leave it at that so Okay, but let's talk about a story that you've, you've written about and also in conjunction with other reporters and it's, it's, it's a big part of the mini uh, market. And 
I won't go into too much detail, but it's basically called the Municipal Liquidity Facility, or MLF for short, as it's widely known. It's through the Federal Reserve Program. So tell us a little bit more about it. Why don't you refresh us? Because I know it's been in the works since uh, I think the CARES Act came out. So why don't you give us the background? Right. Well, all the way back in the olden days, unlike <laughs> in early April, which we can barely remember through the mist, um, after the market kind of seizure in um, March, which I'm sure you know, you and our listeners remember, the Fed created the program and the CARES Act created the funding for it. Um, it's the MLF. Like you said, it basically creates a special vehicle that buys uh, municipal notes directly. And it... Um, Eligible, it, it treats as eligible issuers, states and cities and counties, and there's some multi-state entities that'll be eligible as well. Only one issuer per state or county or city's um, going to be eligible, so that is going to that's going to be kind of a defining characteristic about it. Then they can be notes, as I said, so it's short term; it's up to three years. Can be taxable or tax exempt. The program itself has a five hundred billion dollar capacity, so it's pretty big. Um, the you know, we can talk a little bit more about sort of reaction, but I think that the Fed created the program as sort of a last resort for issuers. They wanted to be able to provide some stability to the market by providing cash um, to ease some liquidity concerns. A lot of what we saw in March was a liquidity problem. So they wanted to be able to, um, issue, to allow issuers who are having a real liquidity problem to be able to access the market, but it is, they're, they're not making it easy. It's kind of a restrictive program. And they want it sort of considered a, um, as I said, sort of a last resort. It's going to carry a little bit of a stigma. And the pricing is real expensive. So they've released the pricing. And it's based on a spread. The, the pricing grid is a spread based on your rating, which is on top of a, a comparable overnight um, index swap rate, which is real nominal, just like a few basis points. So the real meat the real penalty or whatever you want to call it of the pricing is going to be the spread. And like I said, it's based on rating. So for AAA, it's a spread of 150 basis points over that index. And then all the way down to 590 basis points for below investment grade. And then it's about 380 basis points for um, triple B minus, which is um, the lowest rated investment grade. And, you know, for states, obviously that's Illinois. So I know you mentioned some some highlights of the program, like you said, um, one issue per state. Uh, it's a three year pro, it's a based on a three year maturity, and like you said, um, the issuers have to be investment grade, correct? Yes, they must have an investment grade rating, or at least they must have had an investment grade rating as of April eighth under the program term sheet. Oh, okay, and I know. Like you said, way back in the April, it's the thing. Things have changed initially. I know initially that the population amount was different back then. Like yeah. they might, they've changed the program a little bit. Yeah, that's right. They've expanded it, and so they they expanded kind of the universe of eligible issuers. Now it's cities with populations of two hundred and fifty thousand and counties five hundred thousand right. five hundred thousand. So they're making it more. They're making more um, cities and counties eligible for it. And so that was one big change um, that we could maybe see that change again, depending, because this is included in the HEROES Act. Mm -hmm. And um, so there could be some changes that we'll see that would further expand. I think the HEROES Act wants to bring the population requirement down to 50,000 for cities, which is, you know, 
that's a massive difference. And right. also it wants to include territories because now territories are not eligible mm-hmm. for the program. So it wants to do that. It also wants to push out that maturity all the way to 10 years from three years. This would ease, um, this might ease some of this fear of some issuers might be a little nervous about issuing these three-year notes because they don't know if they're, they're kind of assuming they might have to roll them over and, and are they going to be able to roll them over? What is it going to look, what is the economy, what it rates, what's everything going to look like? We don't even know in two, one, two, three years. So there might be some fear about um, having to refund it or roll over. And so that the, the HEROES Act um, changes would expand it out to 10 years. But again, that's HEROES Act. We don't know if that's going to go anywhere. But one, mm-hmm. thing, that, one thing that did change in addition to um, some of that population stuff you talked about was... Um, they, the Fed announced last week that in addition to just buying it directly, original under the original guidelines, they were just going to buy it directly from the issuer. Now they can participate. Uh, now they could buy the notes by participating in a competitive auction. So that'll be the issuer has to be required to sell the notes competitively. But if they can show that they, you know, that would be a state law, and if they can show that that's true, then that will be another way that the Fed can participate, not just directly, but also actually being in there with the banks bidding on notes. Right, and that's, you bring up a good point, Caitlin, because I know you wrote a story yesterday about the state of Illinois where you live now. Tell us about the story and you know how Illinois is packaging uh, this situation. Well, Illinois is you know, eyeing it. They were supposed to come to market a few weeks ago on May 6th with 1.2 billion of notes. They shifted that deal to the day-to-day calendar, citing market conditions. Um, so there's been some there's been some question about whether or not they would tap the MLF, which, like I said, carries some stigma with it. But until last Friday, they wouldn't have really been able to because the state kept telling us they are required under their law to, re- to sell those notes competitively. But now that the Fed revised its guidance, they the fed would be able to participate so the um so the state is filling out the forms necessary to um become eligible for the program so that might be something um the the notes remain on the day-to-day calendar so they might end up going to market before the mlf you know formally opens but in any case it's more of a possibility now in the states you know kind of making the moves to participate Interesting. So let's wrap it up. I know you've talked in detail about this and it's been great talk. I know you talked about the latest in terms of guidance. So I know you and other reports have written about, again, the story. What's the last question I have is like overall market talk on how uh, this will be uh, received. What are market players saying overall about the MLF? Well, I think the first thing is that the pricing was surprisingly expensive. They didn't mm-hmm. expect the spreads to be like that. So um, so that was the first thing people were, you know, sort of unhappily surprised by the uh, by the spreads. Some, but some were happy. Some were saying it needs to carry a penalty. You know, this is, shouldn't be something that should be real easy for the issuer to do from the, the investor side. They don't want that. Um, and, you know, the program has to prove this would this would change under the HEROES Act, but as it's written now, an issuer has to prove it doesn't have market access in mm-hmm. order to tap the program. And that's something that, you know, would carry a lot of stigma with it. And, you know, market people are like, well, why would an issuer want to announce to the whole world they don't have market access? Right. So that would be another reason why it might not be used 
Um, City estimates that of that 500 billion capacity I talked about that only about 150 billion is going to be tapped at the most is what they think. So they don't think it's really going to be that widely used. I mean, in addition to the stigma and the, the pricing which is real prohibitive. There's also the fact that issuers are limited by their own debt statutes, you know, which restrict the amount that they can borrow, that they can borrow for operations. You know, all states carry these different um, laws that restrict their borrowing. So that was, that's going to be something that's going to also limit use of the program. And in general, I think that, you know, people were happy when it came out in terms of another sort of fed move to stabilize the markets, which, you know, as we were saying, we're we're undergoing those kind of seizures in March. And so people viewed it as sort of a, a liquidity backstop that provided some stability to the market. But also, I think it's also seen as sort of not enough of a program that it's going to create another, I mean, that it's going to prevent another liquidity freeze in the market. It's a tool. It's not a giant tool. And it's not something that if, you know, if we start to see kind of some similar uh, challenges that we saw in March, that the MLF in and of itself isn't enough to kind of prevent, to prevent that from happening. Right. And like you said earlier, it's sort of a last resort for issuers who can't access the market. So mm-hmm. at this point, yeah, and we'll see what happens with the HEROES Act. We'll see if it gets expanded. I know a lot of people want to see it expanded. They're pushing hard for that. They want to see it for longer periods and they want to see more eligible issuers and they want to take away that stigma. So we'll have to wait and see. We shall wait and see. But uh, Caitlin, I'm going to ask you one favor before you, before you go. Since it's raining out there in Chicago, I just cut my, my cut my lawn. I want you to send all the rain to me so I can let my grass grow. So. Oh, yeah. okay. I'll concentrate how to send those <laughs> rain clouds to you mentally. Okay. Kaylin, thank you so much for your time and your work, and uh, stay safe out there and dry. Okay. Thank you. You too. Okay. Bye. And that is our show for today. Thank you to our participants, Kaylin Devin in Chicago, Maria Monte in New York, and Christian Ariella, our producer. But as always, thanks to our listeners out there who tune in week after week to the latest on distressed mini credits on debt wires to me lowdown. Stay safe out there, everyone, and hopefully you'll be tuning in again next week. Take care, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to the mini lowdown with me, your host, Young Lim. If you want to know more, subscribe to debtwire.com and follow us on social media. Please leave comments, rate, like, and share. Join us next week when we talk about the latest in the municipal bond market.